I don't know if any of you have had occasion during this month of January, uh, if you happen to ever watch the Sunday evening program, 60 Minutes, you may have seen an ad that they have run each of the Sundays of January. And it's, a, it's an ad that CBS originally refused to air a number of years ago. But they uh, changed their mind and allowed this ad to take place. And the person who does the little spot ad, you know, you'll recognize the name. Uh, his name is Ron Reagan. And his main uh, claim to fame is that his father was former president, Ronald Reagan. And Ron Reagan gives this 30-second uh, ad uh, promoting an organization called the Freedom From Religion Foundation. And this is what he says in the ad. I'm Ron Reagan, an unabashed atheist, and I'm alarmed by the intrusions of religion into our secular government. That's why I'm asking you to join the Freedom From Religion Foundation, the nation's largest and most effective organization of atheists and agnostics working to keep state and church separate. Phone this number, visit this website, and then he signs off with a bit of a smile, Ron Reagan, lifelong atheist, not afraid of burning in hell. And that's the ad they've been running uh, this month. Now certainly, Ron Reagan is not alone in some of his views, and uh, there are all kinds of people that have uh, views about hell, either rejecting it outright that it doesn't exist, or that if it does exist, there's debates about, well, who ends up there, why or why not would they uh, end up there. And as Brad even mentioned in his prayer, uh, this is a tough topic, and it's because it's a serious and a somber topic. And it's one that even for Christians uh, can be distressing. And we know why, particularly when we have this concern and fear that people we know and love, whether our immediate family members or friends and acquaintances that we care about, that we sense their trajectory may be leading them to a point that their destiny will be in this place called hell. And that is reason uh, to be distressed. It's, it's a broad topic, and I cannot treat it exhaustively in one message, but today uh, I will be giving a message that answers the question, how can a loving God send people to hell? And it's a question that you probably have entertained yourself, whether you're in the faith or out of the faith. You can see on your outline that I basically just have three premises I'm setting forth. And the first one, hell is a reality. And obviously where I'm coming from, as all of our messages in this church come from, is from the Bible. So I'm using the Bible as our authority. That is the place we go to determine truth and falsehood and what is real about the world we live in and about the world to come. A brief consideration. Jesus, and this may surprise people, 
Jesus is the one who tells us more about hell than anyone else. And regardless of all the Old Testament text and New Testament texts that also affirm the same thing, and all Scripture is equally inspired by God, but we need to look no further than the Lord Jesus Christ who tells us more about hell and is the one who gives some of the most dreadful descriptions of what hell is like. It may surprise you also that when you look through the New Testament and the Gospels, Jesus actually talks more about the place of hell than he does heaven. There's two texts I want us to read that quote Jesus directly, and the first, if you would please turn there, is Mark chapter 9. Mark uh, chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 42 through 48. I'm picking up in the middle of the context, which is Jesus is responding to people that are trying to hinder the children from coming to him. And actually, I misspoke that. Starting in verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire." where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus singularly, and the English translation gives the word hell, almost all the English translations do that, but most of the English translations put in the margin that he's actually using a word, he's using a name that's called Gehenna. And Jesus is the only one, except for one reference by his half-brother James in his epistle. All the other times it occurs, Jesus is the only one to describe the place we call hell as Gehenna. And Gehenna is taken from a Hebrew term that means simply the Valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom is a valley that runs along the south edge of the city of Jerusalem. As you're coming from the center of the city and going down, 
to the south, there's this valley there that's called the Valley of Hinnom. Now, why would Jesus use Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, to be the word picture He gives to describe the place called hell? Well, it's because the valley in Jewish history was a place of, of horror and murderous sacrifice. In fact, Moses was told many, many centuries before when the Lord spoke to him in the book of Leviticus, he said, say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. And this cult of worshiping Molech involves sacrificing one's children to, excuse me, to this pagan god. You would think that would be something that obviously the Israelites would not have to be told to not do, but the fact of the matter is, as we fast forward through history, there were two kings in Judah who indeed sacrificed their children to the god Moloch in the valley of Hinnom, because that's where the altar uh, was built uh, to Moloch. Ahaz was the first one. We're told in Chronicles, he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel he also made molten images for the Baals. Moreover, he burned incense in the valley of Hinnom and burned his sons in the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. And then sometime later, another king, Manasseh, did the same thing. When Josiah became king and led the revival within the land of Judah, one of the first things he did is he sent soldiers into the valley of Hinnom and made them tear down all these altars so this sacrificing of children to this pagan god would stop. Jeremiah, the Lord speaks through him and states this, they built the high places of Baal in the valley of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Now, by the time uh, Jesus has his earthly sojourn, the Jews had turned away from this heinous practice and had turned this valley south of Jerusalem very fittingly into a garbage dump. It was the garbage dump for the city. And along with the refuse of the city, the bodies of dead animals, even the bodies of dead criminals were dumped there Fires were continually smoldering and burning, and one can only imagine the stench of even going into that place. It's, it's most instructive that Jesus chose that place, that garbage dump, smoldering with rotting flesh, to describe the final destiny of the wicked and the lost. A place of abandonment, a place of uselessness, discarded rubbish, maggots, and the worm does not die. We're talking eternal destruction. And so Jesus, by using the picture of a Gehenna, is basically saying hell is the final smoldering trash heap of the universe. Notice the verses I read, verse 43, he called it a place of unquenchable fire. Over in Matthew 10, Jesus says, Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear the one 
who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna, in hell. When he's challenging the scribes and the Pharisees, and he gives these blistering words to them in Matthew 23, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell, to Gehenna? Turn over with me now to Luke 16, which is the other main text where Jesus gives us further insight about this place of punishment, a place where people are the recipients of the very anger and wrath of God. You will recognize um, uh, this parable, Uh, Luke 16, starting in verse 19. Jesus says, Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. Here Jesus doesn't use the term Gehenna. He uses the term Hades which was simply a word that described a place of temporary residence for the wicked until the final judgment day. But having read those two texts, Jesus says that hell is a very real place. It is a place of torment. It's a place of separation between the godly and the ungodly, the great chasm there in Luke 16. It is eternal. The worm does not die. The fire is not quenched. Over in Matthew 13, he goes on to describe it as a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, which brings to mind sadness, despair, rage, and anger. Over in Matthew 8, he talks about those who will be cast out into the outer darkness. He describes it as a place of vile associations. When he says to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. That's why I say it's a place of vile associations. And to quote just once from the Apostle Paul, along with Jesus' teaching, Paul is writing to the Thessalonians. And he says, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord 
and from the glory of his power. Now, I want to interject uh, one clarification here. And it's a, it's a valid question, and I certainly have uh, wrestled with it. When we read these descriptions by Jesus, how much of this description is to be taken literally, and how much is to be taken figuratively? That is, it's symbolic. And that is not always an easy question to answer, and trusted Bible-believing scholars and pastors do not always see eye-to-eye on any particular text uh, when we talk about whether it's to be taken literally or figuratively. But either way, I think there's one underlying principle we need to keep in mind. And that is, whenever we talk about symbols or images in the Bible, the symbol is used to represent a reality. It is symbolizing a reality. And usually the reality always exceeds in substance what the symbol contains. And so my point is, even if the fire and the unquenchable fire and the torment and the weeping and gnashing of teeth, even if that is not literal, it is symbolizing something that is that and probably far worse. Now, I understand, I've been around long enough to know that whenever anyone says that they deny a literal interpretation, they're looked at with suspicion because often people who want to not take something literally are really trying to somehow diminish the authority of Scripture at one point or another. But that's not the case when we are discussing things like this. And so, and of course the converse is true. If the symbols given about hell are figurative, the reality is far worse. But we could say the same thing about heaven. We read about streets of gold. Well, if it's not going to be streets of gold, literally, it's going to be something that's even far better than that. Because that's the way there is a relationship between symbols and reality in Scripture. So that's just uh, in a quick survey confirms that by the authority of Jesus, the Son of God, hell is a real place where unsaved people will go. Jesus believed it, and he taught it. So probably most of us in the room are Christians, and I'm, so to speak, preaching to the choir at this point. That's not something that's a surprise to any of us who've been Christians for any length of time. But then come the questions that people have and the challenges to this teaching. And hell is seen as one of Christianity's most offensive doctrines. You know, you can talk to an unbeliever, and I'm sure you have at some point, and you can talk about sin and being forgiven and the love of God and the love of Jesus. And even if they don't believe, they kind of resonate that that's kind of a, an attractive uh, philosophy of life to some. They like a Jesus who's loving and forgiving and who spends time with the unwanted and the marginalized. But you talk about punishment, you talk about judgment, having to give an account for your life, and all of a sudden the mood changes, doesn't it? And some of the reasons, and I can't list all of them, but as I think of my conversations and my reading in life and even in conversing with some of you over the years, uh, some of the reasons 
why it's such an offensive doctrine is that for some, it just doesn't seem compatible that a God who is described as a God of love would also be a God who would inflict judgment and wrath on people. I mean, doesn't love require God to accept everyone, especially if it's for all eternity? There's a, uh, there's a, a label, a theological label historically for this view, and it's called universalism. And that's where at the end of the day, people may give some account and experience some measure of judgment for their sin, but at the end of the day, everybody makes the grade, and everybody is saved. That's universalism. Uh, It's been a good number of years now, but there was a, a pastor in this country that probably 20, 25 years ago, in the early years of his ministry in a very exploding church, he seemed rather sound, and he appeared to be orthodox. But as the years went by, he began more and more compromising and neglecting and rejecting certain doctrines in Scripture to where he ends up publishing a book entitled Love Wins. And in that book, he subscribes to the fact that at the end of the day, love wins and God's love saves everybody. That's not what Jesus and the rest of the authors of Scripture teach But then there's some that will concede, okay, granted, there may be a valid punishment of really evil people, but not decent people like most of us who weren't killing anyone and were trying to be charitable and be good citizens. I mean, mean, it's all right for Stalin to be there, but not your everyday average man and woman. There's still others who think that anger and wrath seems unworthy or not befitting of God. It's like some kind of cosmic temper tantrum in some people's thinking. Uh, The pastor and uh, writer Tim Keller, uh, he makes the observation that he thinks one of the factors, at least within American culture, that makes hell so offensive is our obsession with individualism. Uh, The fact that um, the self is supreme and we chart our own course And we decide how we live, and we don't have to give account to anyone. And he cites a sociological study that found 80% of Americans agree with this statement. An individual should arrive at his or her own religion beliefs independent of any church or synagogue. And so we need to just individually live life as we see fit. There's another reason that hell is offensive to people. Isn't the punishment excessive or overly harsh? In fact, to some, it strikes them as cruel and unusual punishment. After all, the Eighth Amendment to the United States Constitution prohibits the federal government from imposing punishments that are cruel and unusual. And some, and I can understand their thinking, the worm doesn't die, the fire is never quenched, outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, that's pretty, that's pretty stern, stern punishment. Also, some have asked, well, if there's going to be a judgment for sins, why does it have to last forever? And so these are all, I mean, that's, those are some of the kind of questions that people ask. But in my view, in my understanding, it seems to me 
that all of these rejections of the teaching of hell or objections to the doctrine are rooted, I think all of them, all these questions find their root in minimizing two biblical truths. And these two biblical truths, one of them concerns God and one of them concerns man. And in tandem, these two together actually show why the existence of hell is a necessity. And the first biblical truth, which concerns God, is that His holiness requires a place like hell. And as I said, and I'll repeat, these two truths, the one about God and the one about man, they have been so sterilized and minimized that I think people have lost sight of just how grave the issue of sin and judgment and salvation is. God's holiness requires that there be His wrath and punishment. A couple of refresher verses in this regard. Exodus 15, who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? That famous passage in Isaiah 6 where Isaiah has the vision of the throne room of heaven and all these angelic creatures. And it says, and one called out to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now, the word holy and all the cognate words that are associated with it over time, 800 times in the Old Testament, I'm going to read you three of them. Aren't you relieved? Ezekiel 39.7, the Lord says, My holy name I will make known in the midst of my people, Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. And when we speak of God being holy, what we are acknowledging is that first, He is separate and apart from His creation, and He is separate and apart from anything unclean, thus He is separated necessarily from any kind of sin or evil. To say that God is holy is to proclaim that He is ethically pure and morally spotless and righteous and just in all His being. I am in the camp that believes when we talk about all the attributes of God, that the foundational attribute of God, that we can rightly say it is the touchstone of every other attribute, is His holiness. So when we say God is love, it's a holy love. When we say God is powerful, it is a, a holy power. What do the angelic creatures cry out there in the Isaiah 6 passage in Isaiah's vision? They could have cried out, loving, 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 or mighty, mighty, mighty. No, they cried out, holy, holy, holy. And God says through the prophet Hosea, for I am God and not man, the holy one in your midst. Habakkuk 1.13, the prophet declares, Your eyes, speaking of the Lord, your eyes are too pure 
to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. And so, if we understand the majestic perfection and beautiness and purity of a holy God, if that concept is enlarged and continues to grow in our minds, it compels us to see why he cannot accept sin, overlook it, and must deal with it. It is the, the, the damned intruder into this universe is when sin entered the picture. And so from his holiness, it spins off three other truths. And the first is because God is holy, he's not only free from sin, God abhors sin. He detests it because it corrupted all of creation and it ruptured the relationship between himself and his creatures, namely people, even though we're told that the whole creation groans from the infected world of sin. God in his holiness and justice is angry with sinners and with the way they behave. And as we, as we ponder and meditate on the holiness of God, how can we conceive of a God who is holy and perfectly just and loving? How can we conceive of that God not punishing evil and sin? His holiness demands that he exact justice and dispense wrath. It may not be the strongest parallel, but it's the only one I could kind of grab hold of as I was putting this message together. All loving persons, all loving persons are sometimes filled with anger or even wrath, not despite our love, but because of our love. Because if we love a person, whether it's an immediate family member, a sibling, a child, a parent, if we love a person and we see someone harming or ruining that loved one, do we not respond with anger? A perpetrator mugs your spouse or your child and leaves them maimed or worse. We know the term righteous indignation. Is there not a righteous anger that someone would harm someone that you love? It's because you love them that you have that response. Someone you care deeply about, how do you, how do you feel the drug dealer that you know is the one that got your son or daughter hooked on it and it keeps selling it to them? You love that child enough that that brings about a response of righteous anger toward that criminal. You know, I think one of the reasons people squirm concerning God inflicting judgment and wrath is that they incorrectly liken it to the kind of anger and wrath that humans often display and so often is destructive. When God exerts his wrath, it is not because he resembles human beings who can just 
get so angry that their blood is boiling or they're seeing red or they're blowing their stack or it's an outburst uh, with uh, loss of self-control or it's uh, fueled by some kind of uh, ego-building jealousy. God's wrath is not so much an emotion as it is a settled opposition of His holiness to evil. God's wrath, and we can say this with, with confidence, God's wrath flows from His love. He is never capricious. He is never irritable. He is never self-indulgent. So the only reason He will judge and punish sinners is because it is such an affront to His holiness. Wrath is, is not an attribute of God, but a, it's a name for the divine response to sin. The fact is, if there was no sin in the world, there would be no divine wrath that was given out. And we should also keep in mind that the language of Scripture, that His wrath is judicial. You know, supposedly uh, the judge who sits... Uh, behind the bench is supposed to be impartial and fair and not biased. And of course, we always see um, when that principle is not uh, the case with some judges who, of course, are human, and sometimes they are biased, and sometimes they make wonderful just decisions, and sometimes we question whether it's justice at all. But we don't have to ever question that with God. In fact, when Abraham was having the conversation about whether God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, whether it's 50 people, 40 people, 20 people. And the conclusion is, shall not the judge of the earth do right? David acknowledges you were right when you judge. And so God is never going to misjudge. I said there were three truths that spun out of his wholeness. The second one is God's wrath fulfills the demands of justice. God has established an objective moral standard in his creation. We do live in a universe of moral absolutes. Now, I realize that is like speaking gibberish to the culture in which we live. But the fact that God will exercise a final judgment that fulfills His own righteous requirements, but it also fulfills the cry for justice that is embedded in the human heart. Human beings encounter in personal experience and in watching the world, all kinds of grievous injustices. What the poet uh, Robert Burns back in the uh, 18th century called man's inhumanity to man. And when we see these injustices, there's something within the human spirit, this needs to be made right. This should not be, this should not be allowed. If it is denied that there is a God who will put all things right, that there will be no final giving account, we would become suffocated with revenge and despair. We all know the, the uh, internal meshing of gears when we see someone that, by all accounts, looks guilty, as the expression goes, guilty of sin, but through some technicality they walk free. That grates on us. I think, I think being made in the image of God, we do cry out for justice. 
And what kind of a world will we live in when we see all of these grotesque and grievous sins of man's humanity, inhumanity against man, to think that there would never be any accounting for it? Most people will acknowledge that if, if they do accept that there is a punishment for wrongdoers, most people will acknowledge there ought to be a difference in the ultimate fate of Danny Rawling, who killed five students in our city years ago, and Mother Teresa, that it, it, it's got to be some accounting for people who live one way and another. God's final judgment gives dignity to our lives. God doesn't judge dogs and cats. He treats human beings as moral agents created in His image and responsible for our choices. So God's wrath fulfills the demands of justice. And a third truth that spins out of His holiness is the existence of hell magnifies God's grace. The lengths that God has gone to in sending His Son to experience hell so we would not have to. He's hanging on the cross and one of His statements my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God incarnate, felt the wrath of God upon Him because He took upon Himself our sins and experienced the punishment that we deserved. Jesus bore the wrath of God. What could be so bad that the death of the sinless Son of God was necessary? Well, what could be so bad is our sin. Why is atonement in the fabric of the whole Judeo-Christian teaching? Why is propitiation necessary for God's wrath to be averted if it's not there to be experienced by some. I said there were two truths that are often minimized. One was about God and the other is about man. And what is often minimized, and I think if we have a proper understanding of it, we don't question why there has to be a heaven and a hell, and that is the gravity of man's sin. The gravity of man's sin requires the existence of hell. When we minimize the extent of God's holiness, we inevitably underestimate the degree to which our sin is an offense to Him. I have a friend uh, who's a pastor up in Washington, uh, Bill Kynes, and he uh, wrote the statement, instead of thinking sin is not so bad, how extreme of God to punish it in hell, what we should think is, what must sin be like if it results in sinners going to hell? Hell shows just how holy God is. God is not angry with innocent people. God is angry with guilty people. The price of diluting God's wrath, the price of diluting His wrath is diminishing His holiness. And I'm not, I have several passages here, but um, in the interest of time, I'm going to read just the one in Romans. 
For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And at the very beginning of the letter to the Romans, which is one of the the grandest treatises on the whole doctrine of, of salvation, he has that wonderful statement in his early verses where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. And then after making that statement, the very next verse, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and righteousness. Everybody loves John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Nobody wants to read further down to John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. I want to give one other clarification here this morning. People, I want you to hear me carefully on this, people who end up in hell are there by their choice. And by that, I don't mean to imply that the residents of hell consciously made it their destiny of choice. Hey, I think I want to go to hell. I don't think anybody's thinking that, if they're in their right mind. But they chose the path that took them there. Those in hell will realize that they sentenced themselves to it by loving the darkness rather than the light, by denying their Creator as their Lord, by preferring self-indulgent sin, and if they encountered the gospel, rejecting Jesus as Savior and Lord. And by the way, God never punishes people for rejecting Jesus if they've never heard of Jesus. But what the lost sinner is punished for is rejecting God the Father as revealed in general revelation. And that's Paul's whole argument in Romans 1 and 2, that they knew God, the creation spoke of God to them, and what they knew they rejected. It says in Romans 1 that they uh, suppressed the truth, rejected the truth. And what word or phrase do we hear over and over? God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over. In Romans 2, he mentions that even those who don't have the law have in their hearts the conscience that God has given them. So when you wonder about the person who's never heard of the name of Jesus ever, they still have an accountability before God that they have rejected in general revelation and in their own conscience. So really what we have is God is displaying a respect for human choice. And C.S. Lewis I don't know why I chuckle, but he just has a way of making me chuckle, even about serious things. But C.S. Lewis said, hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. All in hell receive what they actually chose, either to be with God forever, worshiping Him, or without God forever, worshiping themselves. When reading the numerous passages about God acting as divine judge and king, God is ratifying 
and confirming judgments that are due to the course they have chosen to follow. You know, maybe you've not thought of it this way, but this is evident in God's first act of judgment against humanity in the Garden of Eden. Adam had already chosen to hide from God and keep clear of his presence before God ever expelled them from the garden. And then they proceeded to live under the strain of tilling the resistant soil, the strain of marital harmony, and an eventual physical death. So Adam's first response was to get away from God once he sinned and rebelled. Those who will not deliver themselves into the hand of God's mercy cannot be delivered out of the hand of his justice. I'll quote C.S. Lewis just one last time. He wrote, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. Those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. And certainly, hell is a, a dreadful reality. But as we will sing in a moment the song in Christ alone, take note of the one two-line lyric that says, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And what Paul writes to the Romans, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And let me encourage all of us that if we have occasion to speak about the topic of hell, especially with those who were not in the faith, this is a doctrine that should not be approached in a cavalier or a glib fashion. It's not good to communicate, I'm glad so-and-so is going to be in hell. Now, that's a fine line to walk because there are some people that in their atrocious, grievous sins and harming others, it's easy to think of a Hitler or a Danny Rawling. When I say easy, it seems right that they would be in hell based on what they did. But we want to never be flippant about it. Before I lead in a word of prayer, let me make this one last statement. Do you want to see the love of God? Look at the cross. Do you want to see the wrath of God? Look at the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the sense of seriousness in the room is palatable. I think we all sense it because these are hard things to come to grips with. But Father, I pray that as those who are seeking to walk with you and to understand and obey your word, help us to always avoid the pitfalls of minimizing your holiness, or minimizing the gravity of our sin. And Father, even as we consider 
the destiny that faces all people, either with you or apart from you. We thank you that as Christians, you have done what is necessary so that another writer of Scripture says that we are not destined for wrath. That is because of your grace and your mercy. We are heartsick that there are many who do not know this or believe it. Father, help us to continue to speak the truth to those who come across our path. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.